Chief executive officers, or CEOs, are in many ways the heroes of today's corporate world. Think of Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, or even Donald Trump. They are often the embodiment of the organizations they lead. But even CEOs or managing directors or presidents you've never heard of tend to be rock stars within their own organizations. And that's why they're paid the big bucks. According to the Economic Policy Institute, CEO compensation grew in inflation-adjusted 1,007% between 1978 and 2019, while the wages of the average worker grew a mere 12%. In 2018, their average compensation was $17.2 million, which is about 278 times what the average worker was paid. To be clear on what that means, CEOs made more in a single workday than the average worker did in a year. Let's look at one recent example, Denise Coates, the CEO of British company Bet365. She was paid £469 million pounds, or $647 million in 2020. In that same time period, sales of the betting firm fell 8% and profits dropped a whopping 74%. Does that make any sense? In this final episode of our series, we're going to unpack the role of the CEO and explore a fundamental question. Do CEOs matter? We're going to break this question down into four distinct sections. First, what's the role of a CEO in today's organizations? What do they actually do? Second, how do we know if they're doing a good job or not? Do they actually impact the performance of the companies they lead? And if so, by how much? Third, how are they chosen? And how can we improve the chances of picking the best one? And finally, how can we set them up to succeed? I'm Michael Wade, a professor at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, and this is Management Under the Microscope. In each episode, we take a widely held assumption about business, management, or leadership, and we put it to the test, giving you an inside look into the facts behind the myths and helping you to become a better, more informed manager. I'll be joined in this episode by a board chairman who picks CEOs, a researcher and leadership coach who advises them, and a finance professor who studies them. First, let's look at the role of the CEO. What do they actually do? I asked someone who knows a thing or two about CEOs. Michel Desmarais is a board member of Vodafone and AstraZeneca, a past chairman of chemicals giant Syngenta, and vice chairman of Swiss bank UBS. He's also the chairman of the board at IMD, where I work. He's been around dozens of CEOs throughout his career and has a pretty good idea of the role they play in organizations. Well, you know, if you, you have a ship, you have a captain. If you have an airplane, you have a captain. A football team has a captain. And so obviously your corporation needs uh, to have a captain too. It's very important that at the top of the organization, you have uh, someone who is basically making the final decisions, who is bearing the ultimate responsibility and uh, accountability for the performance. And then, yeah, the, the key role is obviously develop uh, a vision for the company, develop a strategy, and then have the implementation in place to make it happen. Another point also, which I think is very important, is that the CEO is the, is the window of the company. So he's the ultimate ambassador to communicate with the media, with investors, with other stakeholders, quite important too. And maybe the last one that I would emphasize is that he or she sets the tone at the top. So the CEO is at the end the most important person to drive a culture, to drive a set of values in the company. 
I asked the same question to Ben Bryant, the director of IMD's CEO Learning Center, a professor of leadership, and a CEO coach. What did he see as the role of the CEO? So I think there are two things that CEOs do that are incredibly important in terms of impacting organizations. I think the first thing that CEOs do is that they exercise judgment. And that's a fairly obvious thing to say, that they exercise judgment. Of course they do. But judgment is very different from decision-making because the notion of judgment is the idea that you don't quite know how it's going to play out. I think the second aspect of the CEO role that is incredibly important is what I would call the containment role, in, in the sense that what CEOs need to do is actually not be vulnerable. They need to be seen in some ways or other as holding all the tensions, all the uncertainties, all the ambiguities of the organisation, and they hold it in such a way that they don't pass it on. So I have met CEOs who think it's their job to pass on the tension and anxiety that they experience onto all of the organisation so that they feel it and get motivated. I don't think the answer is as black and white as that. I, I think certainly passing on some anxiety to other people gets them motivated, gets them going, but it's a very delicate balancing act. If you pass on too much, you create chaos. That's a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of one person. There's the external part of the CEO's job, set the vision and the strategy, motivate the troops, push implementation, assume the role of communicator-in-chief, drive the culture, and so on. And then there's the internal component, exercising judgment and acting as a container to capture and store the anxiety and vulnerability within an organization. Those things all sound pretty critical to the performance of organizations. If the CEO gets them right, the organization should be in relatively good shape. And if not, it could struggle. And that brings us to the second topic of the episode, CEO performance. Think about the companies that you've worked for. Did the leader have a big impact? I've worked for a few and I would say, yes, they did. For better and sometimes for worse. They did all the things that Michel Desmarais and Ben Bryant talked about, or at least they tried to, and I have the impression that they all had a pretty big influence on our performance. But maybe I'm wrong. After all, it's impossible to know what would have happened if someone else was in the role. Would we have performed better, worse, or just the same? How much of our performance can really be put down to what its leader does or doesn't do? For Arturo Brees, Professor of Finance and Director of IMD's Global Competitiveness Center, this is an empirical question. And he set about answering it by looking at more than 3,500 CEOs of 2,000 publicly traded firms across multiple countries from 1991 to 2019. He tracked the impact of these CEOs on two outcome measures, shareholder returns and return on invested capital. Can you guess how much impact CEOs had on these variables? I, for one, was quite surprised by his results. After controlling for industry, geography, and various firm-level effects, he found that CEOs accounted for just 2% of the variability in stock market returns and 12% of the variability in return on invested capital. After analyzing all the data, his conclusion was that CEOs had a small positive impact on the performance of firms that were doing well and a small negative impact on those doing poorly. Beyond this, there was really no impact at all. 
Here's Arturo Brees discussing his findings. What my research has found is that, first of all, previous studies that look at the impact of the CO uh, overstate their impact. Second, that when we talk about impact, we need to be very careful because there can be positive impact and negative impact. And that's also an interesting point of view. That is, maybe some CEOs truly destroy value. And what I have found is that if you if you take the average impact of a CEO, it's very small. It's almost insignificant. Of course, some CEOs create value, some CEOs destroy value, but, and this is the last result, it's impossible to predict. So very often, it's the pure result of luck or randomness. CEOs are selected on the basis of their past performance. And this is not at all a signal of overall performance because there are no systematically good CEOs. This idea that CEOs don't account for much impact on performance and that luck and other factors play a much larger role than many people think is not new. Three other recent studies by researchers at Harvard, Texas A&M and the University of Vasa in Finland concluded much the same thing. Walter Frick, a senior associate editor at the Harvard Business Review, noted that it shouldn't take a careful empirical study to convince you that CEOs don't get to where they are on the basis of ability alone. If that were true, the C-suite wouldn't be so dominated by white men. When I asked Arturo Brees if anything impacted the performance of organizations in the dataset, he replied that when it came to shareholder returns, a big proportion of the impact came from what was going on outside the organization. For example, global trends made up about 11% of performance, and country effects accounted for another 4%. The only significant item linked to the CEO was the length of time that he or she had been in the job. There is no systematic characteristic of a CEO other than their experience. So the more experienced CEOs tend to be, the better that they perform. But it's not uniform shape either. For very experienced CEOs, when CEOs have a very long tenure, actually the performance of the company deteriorates. Other than that, as you say, uh, gender, age, uh, industry, they don't have a systematic effect. But if top leaders don't impact performance that much, or not at all, then why do we hear so many stories of superhero CEOs? There's just so much out there that points to the influence that they have on the companies they lead. Arturo Brees feels that there's a halo effect around CEOs that can help to explain the widespread assumption that CEOs are really important for performance. If you look at the performance of Apple during Steve Jobs' tenure, it was extremely positive and good. And we tend to attribute that to the performance of the CEO. This is very difficult because we don't know what would have happened if Apple had had another CEO. And, and that's why it's a very, very difficult question to answer. I'm sure that when Tim Cook's performance surpasses Steve Jobs, nobody's going to say that Steve Jobs was not such a good CEO at the end of the day. If we were to adopt Arturo Brees' point of view, then much of the attention paid to CEOs is really the result of luck and a well-cultivated image. If you look beyond those factors, there's really no performance effect at all. So then maybe it doesn't matter that much who you choose to be your corporate leader. But is it really that simple? Well, I have a few thoughts about this. Uh, first of all, it's very difficult to really talk about 
long-term studies on the value addition of a CEO, because unfortunately CEOs don't last that long overall. It's true that I don't know what are the official numbers nowadays, but I would think probably the average tenor of a CEO is uh, between four and five years. And obviously, to really see the impact that the CEO has had in the company, uh, you probably need to have a decade or even more than a decade to, to really be able to judge that. That's Michel Desmarais again, noting that there can be a significant lag effect between decisions made by a CEO and the performance impacts that result from those decisions. He also questions whether the performance of a CEO can simply be put down to a few variables, like shareholder value or return on assets. After all, as we discussed earlier, a CEO has many roles within an organization. Ben Bryant agrees. So my view of trying to attach the work of a CEO and find causality with organizational performance is, of course, a, a very mixed question. I mean, of course, it's going to be influenced by the number of variables that can impact performance apart from CEO. What to measure is important. Writer Michael Lewis has used the example of NBA player Shane Battier, whom he calls the no-stats all-star. It wasn't that Battier didn't have any stats. It's that he didn't rank on any of the normally important measures, like scoring, rebounds, or assists. What made him a tremendous player were harder-to-measure contributions, like shutting down opposing offenses and raising teammates' games. Maybe it's the same for CEOs. The intangibles matter as much or more than the tangibles. When Al Mulcahy took the helm of Xerox in 2001, the company was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. The previous CEO had lasted barely a year. The company was well past its prime and the economy was still suffering the after-effects of the dot-com bust a year earlier. So she cut costs, shed non-core activities, invested in research and development of new products and services, and groomed a generational shift of new leaders to take the company forward. By the time she handed over the reins to her chosen successor, Ursula Burns, in 2009, she'd been named CEO of the Year by Chief Executive Magazine and was consistently part of Forbes' list of the 100 most powerful women in the world. However, while she left the company in good shape to compete in a new digital world, Xerox's share price was actually lower on the day she stopped being CEO than it was on the day she started. So was she a good CEO or not? Is merely looking at financial performance or share price a massive oversimplification of the impact of a CEO? Does it, in fact, distract attention from important qualitative indicators, such as the ones described by Michel Desmarais or Ben Bryant? What does Arturo Brice think about all these other non-financial aspects of performance? I love that question for two reasons. My leadership colleagues will always tell me the following. So when I say, do CEOs impact performance? The first type of answer is, if you believe that they don't, then you are stupid, you know, because you're in a business school where you prepare leaders. But the second type of answer is, well, in fact, we know from many studies, which, by the way, basically depend on samples of five companies, 10 companies, so they are not statistically respectable, but still, they will say, you know, we know that CEOs increase team cohesion, they increase morale, they increase employee satisfaction. Uh, I, 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 there are plenty of studies that do so. But at the end of the day, if we as a school that, that claims to generate real-world, real-impact solutions, impact has to be measured by the ultimate KPIs of a company. So if morale does not translate into financial performance, then we have a problem. 
Maybe we're not going to get to the bottom of the question of whether quantitative or qualitative measures matter more to assess the impact of CEOs on company performance. They both matter. But at the same time, they're both deeply flawed. Subjective performance can be endlessly debated. And besides, companies and CEOs themselves work very hard to shape the narrative in their favor. A case in point was Elizabeth Holmes' tenure as CEO of Theranos, a biotechnology company that at one point was worth $9 billion. Holmes created a storyline that everybody wanted to get behind. She was a young, female, charismatic leader in a male-dominated tech world. Yet behind the facade was a dark story of lies, deceit, and intimidation. The narrative, however, was so compelling that it drew in key industry and political leaders like Henry Kissinger and George Shultz. But quantitative measures also need to be regarded with caution. The stock market seems to have a mind of its own these days. How confident can we be that the share price of a company is an accurate reflection of its financial performance, never mind the ability of its CEO? While a number of studies like the one Arturo Brees conducted show that the link between CEOs and financial performance is negligible, other research shows the opposite. Morton Benison and colleagues found that when CEOs were hospitalized for five to seven days, their firms saw profitability drop 7% in the year of illness. Longer hospitalizations resulted in worse performance. And the impact of hospitalizations on CEOs was more than double that of other senior leaders. Then there's the question of delayed impact. There's an old proverb that goes something like this. A society grows great when its people plant trees in whose shade they know they shall never sit. Maybe the best CEOs are the ones that make decisions and take actions that don't show up in traditional performance metrics for a long time. Michel Desmarais alluded to this a bit earlier. A recent study by consulting firm McKinsey suggests that this might be the case. Research of over 600 CEOs over 15 years found that those who made bold decisions earlier in their tenures tended to lower performance in the short term, but do better in the long term. The problem was that these increased performance benefits often came after the CEO had been replaced. This finding reminds me of a famous case of crime reduction that was described in the book Freakonomics. Politicians and law enforcement leaders were keen to claim credit for massive drops in criminal activity across much of the United States starting in the early 1990s. The authors of the book instead linked it to the delayed impact of the famous 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision to make abortion legal across all 50 states. Those babies not being born weren't committing crimes as adults two decades later. It seems to me that assessing CEO performance is not as simple as it may first appear. Over-reliance on a few simple measures risks under or overestimating the CEO's impact. Rather, a basket of measures needs to be employed that crosses a range of qualitative and quantitative factors and takes into consideration the time-lag nature of cause and effect. There are no shortcuts here, no quick or easy solutions. And this leads to the third section of this episode, how CEOs are chosen. All three guests have mentioned the challenges of picking the right person for the job. This is not easy, especially if you can't trust the data. So how are CEOs chosen? This task normally falls to the board of directors. But how successful are they? Earlier, Michel Desmarais mentioned that the tenure of a CEO is about four to five years. 
That's pretty consistent with a recent study by consulting firm PwC that pegged it at five years after looking at 2,500 public companies over two decades. But only 19% of them stayed in their positions for more than 10 years. Five years is not a long time for a role that often requires a decade or more to make a sustainable impact. Other other options for choosing a CEO? Arturo Brees has an interesting perspective on this question that is a natural outcome of his research. One of the interpretations of my own study is to say maybe companies would do better without CEOs. And that's not what I say. What I say is that whether you have one CEO or another doesn't make a difference. I think to me, as I said earlier, it is interesting to question the political system that we have in corporations. We don't have democracies, but we don't have dictatorships either. Imagine a country in which the prime minister is elected by only a subset of individuals. Let's say people who are above 180 meters of, of height or something like that. This is what happens in corporations. And we, we don't question that, you know. It's like a bit like the different political system in, systems in the Roman Empire, where a CEO plays the role of a dictator appointed by a subset of wise men or wise women. Okay? I think that it would be interesting to find out new systems in which CEOs are appointed by popular election within the company, by governance systems in which, for example, employees have a much stronger say in the corporate matters, where customers are involved. What I'm not clearly saying is that companies would do better without a CEO. But probably we could do better with a different type of leadership system. I think it's probably true that most people don't question how CEOs are chosen, nor do they experiment much with different models. CEOs are picked by boards of directors almost anywhere you go in the world. Perhaps this is a case of the best available model rather than the perfect one, in the spirit of Churchill's famous quote about democracy being the worst form of government except all the others. Or maybe there are other models that would be better if we just try them out. How often do employees pick their leaders, for example? There is the selection process. I don't think we can say that it's scientific. There are plenty of people who say they've got scientific methods for choosing CEOs. I think there are variables that are more important than others, but we clearly don't do a brilliant job at selecting because the turnover that we have in CEOs. So the question is, is it the actual selection process or is it the first year or the first year and a half that actually makes a difference to the CEO's performance? I think that's the part where boards miss the opportunity to have an impact on a CEO is they don't know how to support a CEO who is in their initial period of being in a CEO role. For Ben Bryant, it's not only a question of how to choose a CEO, it's also important how that leader is supported during his or her tenure. And this brings us to the fourth section of this episode. Given all the challenges inherent in the role, how can we set a CEO up to give him or her the best chance of succeeding? But before we go there, let's recap our progress so far. First of all, we've established that the role of the CEO is important, generally well-paid, but also pretty challenging. It's time-consuming, exhausting, complex, and stressful. Second, there seems to be no clear way to determine if a CEO is successful or not. The measures we use are flawed, sometimes inaccurate, and may in fact be counterproductive to the long-term performance of organizations. Both of these realities about a CEO, a highly complex job that's hard to measure, make it extremely difficult to choose the best candidate for the job. 
So how can we improve the chances of making CEOs matter? Let's start with finance professor Arturo Brice. I strongly believe that one of the skills that we very often regard for CEOs is their ability to grasp all of these global or industry trends. Uh, that is, very often the performance of a CEO within an industry does not depend on how she he finds different strategies, but much more about how she's able to incorporate all of these global effects that actually are more impactful on performance than industry characteristics. Whether or not you fully embrace Professor Brees's argument that CEOs have a negligible effect on corporate performance, it's hard to deny his conclusion that external factors like industry effects, political forces, global trends, or major events play a large role in the performance of organizations. We need look no further than the COVID-19 pandemic to see how important external events are. And so it makes sense that CEOs should be able to understand and respond to them effectively. Michel Demaret talks about a number of factors that are important for a CEO to succeed. I think the, the impact that a CEO can have on a company, for me, is depending mainly on two things. The ego of the CEO and the governance around him. Starting with the ego, I've seen a lot of people that were really good people, good managers, uh, listening, and then they suddenly became CEO. And over the years, they became a total different person. And in a way, you can kind of understand it because you become CEO, you get this wet carpet treatment, you know, wherever you go, you have your chauffeur, your private planes, you, you know, everybody agrees with you all the time. You know, you don't get this uh, challenge. And for some people that don't have enough humility on the feet on the ground, you feel like you have become God at, at the top of the company. And so you've seen a lot of CEOs that have really drastically changed personality, stopped listening, lost the proximity with their teams. And this is usually not developing the right way. And these people will not have an impact because after a while, they believe they have become more important than the company. And that is a big issue. How do you solve that is with the right governance. I think the combination of ego and weak governance is the recipe for disaster. So to me, governance is very important. You have a CEO, and we have discussed the role of the CEO, and you have a chairman. And to me, these two roles cannot be done by the same person because then you have a concentration of power which is just out of control and the whole checks and balances are normal there. And so it is very important that the CEO is just an executive CEO and that you have a chairman who is the head of the supervisory board. And I think it's only if you get these two points together that you really can achieve the right condition for a CEO to have an impact. So, according to Michel Desmarais, CEOs can have a major impact on the companies they lead, both financially and culturally, as long as their egos are kept in check and they're held accountable for their performance through good governance. But then he also has a point of view on how they are paid. Maybe another aspect that we have not really uh, touched is on the remuneration side, and that leads us back a little bit to the question, uh, how do we evaluate if a CEO has been successful? Well, 
as I said, to me, it's not just the share price and the EPS for a given year, but it's also all the long-term work that he has done. And that has to also be captured at the remuneration policy level. So if all the incentives you are putting is based on the total shareholder return and performance versus budget, I think you will get what you ask for. Very good focus on short-term performance, maybe at the cost of investing what it takes to take the company to a different level after that. So balance uh, scorecard uh, from a remuneration policy is extremely important where the CEO is also evaluate on the culture that he has uh, imposed in the company, on the people he has developed, on the strategic uh, focus that, that he has shown, on the sustainability aspects uh, of the business and the industry, the, the role that he has played to position the company within its industry and all that. A recent McKinsey study concluded that CEOs are often given conflicting objectives. Play for the long haul and build for the future, but at the same time show positive short-term results. But compensation is often tied more to the latter than it is to the former. Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever, was so frustrated by this conflict that he banned sharing quarterly results entirely. Here he is at an event at Harvard describing a move early in his tenure as CEO to reframe the focus at Unilever from the short to the long term. So we started to look again and bringing that purpose back into the uh, company. Very much resonated. I also figured that if we wanted to build this company back up again, you cannot do that in the red race of quarterly reporting. I had to create some space. So when I became CEO... I figured the first day they hire me, they're not going to fire me. Turned out, unfortunately, for my wife to be true for 10 years. But <laughs> but, but um, we stopped quarterly reporting. We stopped giving guidance. We moved our compensation systems to the long term. At that time, the share price actually negatively reacted by 8% because the company wasn't doing well. They thought there must be some bad news coming. But I just wanted to create that space and send the signal to the people that we were going to rebuild this company. We put audacious objectives behind that as well obviously but um, that was the first sign and obviously you don't change a culture by saying things and you don't change a culture by by your first day there but it sent a message and we were going to grow the business ben bryant talks about the importance of being able to absorb the stress and pressure of the role and resist the temptation to deflect the stress back at fellow leaders but when asked to consider the main way that a ceo can improve his or her performance he points to the criticality of learning I have a bias around this question, and so I'll declare my bias up front, is that I think that CEOs who grow in the role, who learn in the role, are the ones who will have the most impact given who they are. Because walking into the CEO role is something that is very challenging for anybody who takes that step. And as they walk into that role, What do they take on board? What do they learn as opposed to do they feel what's more important is that they have a strong sense of conviction? But if that conviction blinds your capacity to learn and adjust, this is where I think CEOs will not be as impactful as they might have been. CEOs may seem from the outside like superheroes or supervillains, but really they're just people like the rest of us. They have traits and knowledge and experiences that are more or less appropriate depending on the context. And that's the thing about contexts. They change. 
Take COVID-19, for instance. Most CEOs had little or no experience managing under the short-term pressure of a global pandemic, and as a result, many struggled. Ben Bryan's point of view is that no matter who is chosen or how their performance is measured, a critically important factor in CEO performance is how they are supported by the organizations they lead. Some CEOs are quite frankly set up to fail by unrealistic expectations, insufficient support from the board, poor talent, or any number of other factors. It's not only the external environment that Arturo Brees talks about that's relevant, it's the internal one as well. In summary, do CEOs have a major impact on the performance of the organizations they lead? I think the answer is yes, they do. If they didn't, you wouldn't see much difference in the performance of companies that are facing similar opportunities or threats. But we do. External factors may play an outsized role in the performance of organizations just as all boats rise and fall with the tide. But that doesn't mean that all boats are alike. And there's plenty of room for CEOs to help build a better boat than their competitors. Can CEO impact be measured? I think this episode has shown that the answer to this question is not easily but they can be set up in a way that increases their chances of being successful. They should be backed by strong governance structure, including a supportive but challenging board of directors, as suggested by Michel Desmarais. They should keep a very close eye on the external environment, as their actions will need to be coordinated with what happens in the wider world, as found in Arturo Brice's work. They must be compensated in a way that aligns their incentives with the long-term performance of the organization. They need the right talent around them. They need luck. And they need an organization that is agile enough to adapt to changing conditions. Finally, they need to be allowed space to fail and learn, as pointed out by Ben Bryant. It's not easy to be a CEO in today's world. But if they're going to be paid the big bucks, and most of them are, then they should be responsible for the performance of the organizations they lead. Still, pinning the hopes of an organization on one man or woman is pretty risky. The main message from this episode is to spend as much or more time preparing the organization for the CEO to succeed than it is to spend time picking the right person to lead it. You've been listening to Management Under the Microscope, written and presented by me, Michael Wade, and produced by Pete Norton. We're a production of the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, one of the world's leading providers of insights and education for executives. To find out more about the school and to read our new magazine, I Buy IMD, which has pieces on everything from CEO activism to the future of marketing, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. This is the final episode of this season of Management Under the Microscope, but please stay subscribed to the feed. A new series is on the way and we'll be sharing news about it right here soon. Thanks for listening.